to Lawrence in the comic books recently is depicted with her coffee. Like, what is your ideal morning coffee situation? When I do drink coffee, it's a black coffee hot with one Splenda. And I believe that's also what Lorna would drink in real life. A steady cable. A cable. I would, I would <laughs> love that. I would love that. Shout out to the Powers of X-Men podcast. I just write at Marvel Comics right now. The Pretender's Death, like be. Familia, we have a really special episode today on Power of X-Men. We have Stephen E. Gordon, who was the lead character designer and director of a couple of episodes of X-Men Evolution. I was about to say Wolverine and the X-Men, of which he is part of, <laughs> but but X-Men Evolution primarily. And we're going to get into that conversation, but we have a very special co-host for this episode, our friend Cody. What's up, Cody? Hey, Paul. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, no. Well, it's funny. I was like, "Who here is an X Men Evolution fan?" And you responded to my DM, and you're not just an X Men Evolution fan. You're like a crazy stan. I love it. I, I don't think it was one of those where it's like I, you know, I we we talk quite a bit. I think on social media, and I think seeing you comments about that, I was like, "Oh yeah." Like, but it's also like, "Does he really like this?" Or is it just like how he likes all X Men things? But X Men Evolution is like, probably it, it's up there with with high X Men X Men loves. It's so interesting because I grew up in fourth grade watching X-Men the Animate Series, and you in fourth grade grew up with yes. X-Men Evolution. It was the the animated series, I think, was now officially wrapped, and the movie, the, the Fox movie was dropping, and so they were re-airing X-Men the Animated Series episodes, which I, I loved and ate up, but then when X-Men Evolution dropped, it was like, this is it like this is this is my show this is so cool um i'm i'm a big cyclops guy and i always get made fun of from my friends who just think he gets hit all the time in the x-men the animated series but then going to x-men evolution it's like oh yeah this is why this is where my cyclops love truly truly comes from well it's such a great version of the the character i'm always going to remember that scene where it's, I think it's blind alley where Mystique yeah. is coming after him. And then jeans like comes and saves him. And she's here. Like, I don't know why I knew. And he's here. Like, you don't need to explain it. Mm-hmm. We have the special rapport. And that to me is like Scott fully realized as a character. Certainly not the Scott we have in the comics and certainly no, not yeah. Scott in other iterations, but we we've known each other. We, we met at San Diego comic-con last summer, last summer. Yeah. 
Did so, I randomly come up to you, or were you? Did you see me, and then you came up to me? I don't remember. I saw you. I think we had been friends on yeah. um, Instagram for a while, and I was like, I'm pretty sure this is the the Power of X Men guy. <laughs> and I, so it was right after the uh, the Marvel animated panel. I think we were both like waiting out for our significant others outside of the bathroom, and I was like, yeah. Hey, man! And then I think that's where we started talking. Okay, good. I thought I probably came up. I got ragged on recently on the podcast. I go up to people, and I'm like, Hey, what's up let me ask you a quick question about the X I get in people's <laughs> faces but I remember us having a far more pleasant interaction far more, yeah human conversation human conversation yeah. instead of me good. shoving the phone in your face but you also have a big presence in the X-Men community you're doing your own thing as well well yeah so I um I love I love comics um I loved comics for a long time and then my friend Riley and I we were co-workers when I'm uh, when I'm not reading comics one of my jobs is I'm a I'm a teacher I'm a media and performing arts teacher and so um me and the choir teacher at the school I worked at I started lending him some comics around the time of uh, Avengers Endgame and then I got him hooked too and it's always really good to share your addiction with someone else mm -hmm. um so you don't have to feel as bad spending money on Wednesdays when comics drop mm -hmm. um and then together we just started uh, our own podcast uh Immortal, immortal X friends. Um, so we are we are slowly uh, having our our X Men podcast where we talk a lot of a lot of things Krakoa, a lot of things Jonathan Hickman, um, and but slowly trying to branch out into into more as as he reads more and kind of catches up. But uh, yeah, I love that. I'm a also a screenwriter uh, and director, and so comics keep me sane uh, in the midst of my own storytelling avenues and so it's always one of those big things where it's like at the end of the day i can go back to x-men and that can be my like true north on if i'm being an honest storyteller and writer yeah it, it, i have to tell you immortal x friends i i, I just want to say immortal x-men uh, the way it comes <laughs> out you guys did Sin sense of sinister you did hox pox i mean yep. you guys are tackling those those really contemporary stories that for it's it's funny I, I have been back with the X-Men since Morrison, which we talk about in yeah, this interview. Yeah. So it's always so weird for me that when people engage with Power of X-Men in our community, they're like, oh, I just started reading the X-Men with, with Hickman. And again, it's so mind-blowing to think that there's this whole new generation of new readers. So I think what you're doing there, like bring, breaking down these stories and making it digestible, it's just it's an awesome vibe, man. Well, thanks, man. It's cool. Yeah, it's a, it's yeah, it's fun. And it's I, I cannot imagine if... The same way, I can't imagine if Hawksbox was my intro yeah. into X-Men. And so it's one of those where it's like, it is a lot of intro for people that only are familiar with the movies or X-Men Evolution. And so trying to make that easy to understand, to there's a lot of great modern stories. And I think that's the conversation that I most often end up having with, with fans that will reference Dark Phoenix or Days of Future Past or Extinction Agenda and being like, hey, actually, like, this is really good too right now. Yeah. So trying to bridge that. Well, you know, what's really good. This interview with Stephen <laughs> Gordon, because he, he told us a lot of, of tea here. A lot of tea. Confirm yeah. some things. Deny, debunk some things, not denying. I mean, we did ask him if X-Men Evolution was being revived. And he said, no, I don't believe him. <laughs> the Lee Waltz and like Larry Houston told us, no, X-Men 97 wasn't going to happen. And it did. So. But no, I think one of the things that he said here that was really interesting was there was a lot of Buffy reference. They were big Buffy fans. And that kind of came. Are you a Buffy fan? I, I don't know. I am I'm a Buffy fan. Yeah, I'm a Buffy fan. Um, I, I came to Buffy in, I I wasn't 
I wasn't allowed to watch oh, you Buffy when old I was enough. younger. I was one of those. Yeah. So, so what's weird is I actually, I found Smallville first and then Buffy and then realized like, wait a second, like, like these are the same. Um, but I came to Buffy in college and and that's where I got to fall in love with it. Yeah. I mean, we see, I, I we will let our, our, our listeners today figure it out um, as they go through the interview. But it, it's interesting to see how much of Buffy influenced evolution because yeah. the genesis of what they wanted to do was they wanted to tell a high school story a la Buffy. And I think that sort of comes out. But yeah, he told us some characters may have been in the closet initially and the way they kind of saw it. There was one character in particular that they wanted to build the entire series around, which has inspired yeah. so many people. And we, of course, have to ask about... Laura Kinney, aka X23, aka the best Wolverine right now. So the Wolverine, yeah. The Wolverine. But anyways, wait, what, why don't you intro the episode? All right. Power of X-Men listeners, get ready. Get ready for our X-Men Evolution interview starting right now. Steven, we are so excited to have you here today. How are you doing, man? Good. Most very good. Thank you. My pleasure to be here. Well, we both, Cody and I, we love X-Men Evolution. Cody, I didn't know you were that big of a fan of X-Men Evolution. So much. It's, um, I, I think I'm a little younger than you, Paul. And so like while the animated series was like my intro to X-Men, when X-Men Evolution came out, I think I was fourth grade. So it was like, these were the teens that I wanted to be. And uh, when my wife and I first started dating, I realized how big of a fan she was too. And that was a big, big part of our early, early courtship was bonding over Goth Rogue and Scott Summers and how these versions <laughs> should have ended up together. But, you know, nice. controversial. Steven, nice. are you? Glad to have uh, been helping your courtship. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Steven, are you aware of the amount of shipping that goes on for Goth Rogue and Cyclops? Yeah, well, I don't know about the amount. That's hard to say. But yeah, I knew that there was uh, quite a bit of um, fan uh, exploration about that. And they liked yeah. it. Yeah. We, we kind of, that was one we kind of set up ourselves. You know, some of the other others we weren't quite aware of. You know, obviously the Kitty and Lance one we knew about. Yeah. Lancity and <laughs> Lancity. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Wait, yeah. I've never. Have you heard of Lancity before, Cody? Yeah, I have. I thought that was that was another one. I remember watching that young and be like, "Oh my gosh, you're gonna get with the bad boy! Like this is this is amazing." Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. funny. It came to me. Yeah, I'm a little older than you, Cody. Um, X Men Evolution came to me when I was about those characters' ages. Like I believe okay. I was probably graduating when Gene and Scott were graduating. <laughs> and so they went from being like the like the X Men versus the you know. The ones I had grown up with, they became more contemporaries in my eyes, and like I could relate to them a bit more in their struggles. So, we we Good. we have tons of X Men Evolution questions for you. But Stephen, just to get you get to know you a little bit more, when did your passion for animation begin? Uh, well, I don't know if it was passion so much. I mean, I kind of fell into it by accident. I was mm -hmm. not intending to get into animation. That was not my goal when I was in high school. When I was in high school, I had been planning into getting into, getting into illustration and stuff, and I kind of fell into animation by accident and have stayed here ever since. So, wait, how how does one accidentally fall into animation? <laughs> well, when I was in high school, I uh, was getting my portfolio ready to start sending to places like Art Center 
in Pasadena and other places uh, for illustration and just art in general. Uh, and uh, my art teacher, who was kind of guiding me along, was uh, had come across a um, ad in a trade paper. I, I'm not sure. I think it was Variety, maybe, or something. I'm not really sure. Maybe it was an art paper. I really don't know. Uh, and it was asking for portfolio submissions. So she thought it would be great for me to submit what my portfolio was at that moment and get a professional review of it. And in some ways, take a little of the wind out of my sails. Um, <laughs> because, you know, I, you know, in high school, there's always one person who's the art major or something, and that was me. The big was the art. Yeah, I was the big art person. I was doing the you know, the yearbook and the newspaper and whatever else. Anytime art came up, I was painting murals on the wall and whatnot. You know, I was kind of all over the place as far as art goes. So she thought it might be good to take me down a peg or two and make me realize <laughs> that I was just in high school. Um, so anyway, so as it turns out, though, I guess she wasn't as familiar with how things worked as she thought she was, even though she was actually a uh, working artist doing freelance and stuff, whatnot, uh, while she was teaching art. And you, anyone now could tell you no one's going to give you a uh, review if you submit a portfolio. They either like it or they don't. And usually if they review it, it's more you know, more boilerplate, like, yeah, you don't fit up to our expectations or yada, 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 you know, that type of thing. And so she was wrong about that, and she was wrong about the other two because I got the job. <laughs> so that's uh, awesome yeah so uh you know i i my the wind got kicked out of my sails a little bit later once i met everyone else that was being hired too and realized that i was really probably on the bottom rung of abilities and qualities and stuff but anyway so uh, in high school they uh, uh helped me get the job uh, by um or accept the job by allowing me to uh, graduate with the rest of my class, but by taking the rest of the uh, classes through night school, adult night school and stuff. So because they were very excited because as it turns out, I think I was being offered more money than they were. So, so that, that so I fell into it by accident. And even then I only expected to do it for this one project and then get back on track and, you know, head back to art school and stuff. But, you know, um, but at the time, one of the girls that I met there and started, I dated a little bit, uh, who was the, actually, she was in ink and paint, but she was the daughter of a, uh, you know, a animation person from way back, you know, from Disney and whatnot. And so she was, so, and she said, no, trust me, no one gets out of this. Once you're in it, you're in it. <laughs> and as it turns out, she was right. So that's how I fell into it by accident. That's <laughs> awesome. What was, it, if you can say, what was that first project? That yeah, Lord you... of the Rings. Okay. Oh, okay. Yes. Ra well, we Ralph have questions Batch, about that a yeah, little bit. Yeah. Ralph Batchy's Lord of the Rings. Yes. That was an awesome first project to work on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, I, it, everything kind of clicked into place. It worked. I mean, I was kind of, vaguely interested in the property anyways as far as you know i've been i've read the books i tried to read the books i couldn't really get through them it, it was too dense for my taste and when i got hired i 
you know, got into it more because, you know, fantasy was sort of my thing at the time, yeah. even though those particular books were not. But um, so it was nice. And plus, you know, it was a great place to uh, start out because, you know, he, if he saw Ralph saw some ability, he would move you up quickly mm-hmm. and try to find another position for you. Or as positions opened, he would put grab someone from the lower rungs like we were and move us into it. So. It's so interesting that that was your first project because I mean that movie. I mean they played for they played it for me as a kid, you know, in the classroom before the movies were were out. And till this day, I have seen it, and it holds up, and it's so iconic. What was yeah, it's it? not bad. It's not bad at all. In fact, I'd, I'd venture to say there are sequences in it that Ralph made that are probably better than Peter Jackson's. Yeah, I, I think you know, like the death of Boromir. <laughs> I think his death of Boromir is far superior than Peter Jackson's. And um, you know, there's and obviously Peter Jackson must have been a fan because there's many images and setups, camera setups that he took directly from Ralph. So, and, so you know, I think someone on the internet has done some sort of comparison between them. I've like I've seen a I've seen a few of those comparisons. Yeah. They're yeah. they're yeah they're shocking. Yeah. Um, on that note, is there is there a particular piece of, of animation, film, or TV that inspired you when you were younger to kind of lead you down that path? You said you're a big fantasy guy. Well, it, what I was into in fa- and as a younger guy, fantasy-wise, was like the books of Edgar Rice Burroughs and Michael Moorcock and, uh, you know, the Elric novels and the John Carter of Mars books and yeah. stuff like that. And, uh, and obviously a, a huge fan of uh, Frank Frazetta at the time as most, you know, budding artists were today <laughs> and stuff. So, uh, but when I did, this is all pri- prior to my scene, setting in my portfolio and all that, I went to see Wizards with a girlfriend at the time in high school. And I, that just floored me. I thought, wow, this is great. You know, because at that time, the only animation you could see was Disney which had been come increasingly getting more saccharine, you know, like with Aristocats and crap like that, and uh, uh, or TV animation and stuff. So things had really kind of fallen apart. But, you know, when I saw Wizards, I thought, wow, this is, I can't believe that I'm seeing this, you know, you know with all those, you know, this stuff, Mike Plug's drawings at the beginning, the, the drawings and all the, the handling of the subject matter and everything else. I thought, this is marvelous. So, but I still wasn't like, gee, I got to be into it, you know, get, get into animation. I just thought, wow, that's really fantastic. I, I've never seen Wizards before. I'm looking at it right now. Ralph also did that movie yeah, as well. Exactly. Yeah. Guys, gorgeous. So, yeah. I mean, it, well, it, it's, it's a, it was him kind of doing a comedic take sort of on a, a Lord of the Rings type subject. You know, it's very much wizards and, but, you know, he threw in Nazis and he threw in, you know, know, if you're familiar at all with any of Ralph's prior works to Lord of the Rings, you know, he would definitely have a shotgun approach to storytelling and whatever worked for him at the moment he would put in. (laughs) That's definitely got it, so. Is there a particular animated film that you think everyone out there should watch? That you just think, like, when you see that it's so perfectly done, it is a masterpiece. Well, I think Pinocchio still really holds up very well. Um, 
Yeah, you know, there's a few plot holes in it, but overall, it's it's a magnificent piece of animation and storytelling. Um, there's others too. I mean, there's a whole chain of them now. Now there's just so many films that it's hard to <laughs> narrow it down to uh, one or two. Um, but you know, I, I think that was pretty good. I, th- I think you know some of the latter Disney films like Mulan were real good. Um, and you know, it just depends on what you're looking for in a film. Um, I mean, I, I'm not very traditional. You know, I wasn't a huge fan of Roger Rabbit. I wasn't, you know, I thought there were some other films that, you know, even Beauty and the Beast, I thought was good, but I thought had severe problems, especially in the animation and stuff and the design work. So, oh, really? You know, it's funny. I never thought about character layouts and design with animation until I, I they did a Sailor Moon revival and the models just look kind of off and I would do mm. deep dives. But it was an entirely different world I wasn't used to. My brother was going at the new school at the time and he was he majored in animation. Mm. And so he was explaining to me how character models work and all that. And it was something that just always evaded me. Sure. Growing well, up. And that's good that the general public doesn't get as nitpicky as people in the business. <laughs> you know. But you know, overall, I mean, you know, a lot of those films are great films, but it's hard for me to say, well, this is the perfect film because I see a lot of the, the actual mechanical problems and stuff, and, and even some story problems and whatnot. Like even the first Toy Story, while a great film, the handling of the humans was so awful. I, I came out of there thinking, boy, they should have just used humans and matted them in. So, you know, obviously, that probably a good thing they hadn't because that would have set up a weird precedent. <laughs> I'm they not couldn't have followed. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, the, the first one was just like those humans who just looked like they were bought off the shelf, you know, and pulled from Poser and stuff. You know what? I yeah. got to ask you about Titan AE. Please, like, please, you don't understand. I was listening to Cosmic Castaway this morning on my jog. I mean, this is the film just hit me at the right time in my life, much like X-Men Evolution. Hmm. So what what was it like working on Titan AE? Well, l- well, let me clarify. Uh, I didn't work on Titan AE. I worked on it when it was called Planet Ice. Mm. And it had a different director and a whole different uh point of view and everything. I mean, we still had basically the same characters, a lot of the same characters. They weren't refined at the time I was on it, but at at the time, it was um, a lot of a mess. You know, no one knew exactly what the story was. In fact, we created a, uh, must have been like a 15-minute prison break sequence that just went. (laughs) And (laughs) even while we were doing it, going, this film can't have that fifteen-minute prison break in it because <laughs> you know that it's not about a prison break. You know, it's a, but there are just all types of problems with it. But I, you know, I left before it got pulled and handed over to Don Bluth to become plan, uh, Titan AE. So my experience with it was only in the early, early development and story stages of it. So, but like I said, a lot of the main characters were they weren't final. But they were pretty much as they ended up being in the the final movie. So, 
That's well, thank you for laying the groundwork for that because I mean, the movie was one of my favorites in oh, my, good, my good. early teens. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think it was one of Blue's best. I think, frankly, if you look at his entire repertoire, it would be mm-hmm. Anastasia, would probably be his strongest film just because it held, holds up in a lot of ways that most of his films don't, you know, as far as story and. A romantic feel and actually getting from point A to point B without too many staggering moments in it. That, I mean, the only one in, in uh, Anastasia that I think is a very, very blues moment was the whole LSD trippy thing with uh, Rasputin. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that was very much blues, whereas the rest of it was, I think, was being forced upon him storytelling wise by uh, Fox and stuff. So, But I still think it's the strongest film overall. Technically, it wasn't bad, but it's got some weird trip, weird things in it that are <laughs> some weird, oddly unintentional homoerotic stuff that I don't think was intentional. <laughs> and, so. you, you, you have some credits on Anastasia as well, don't you? Yeah, I, I did some freelance animation on that film uh, from California. It was all done in Arizona, but... Uh, I, I don't know if I contacted them or they contacted me, but I did you know, probably about, I don't know, a handful of scenes, enough, I get I think, to get a screen credit on it. So so it, it was good. It was mostly rotoscope stuff at that time and whatnot. And I, I think I did um, a lot of the uh, stuff where she was um, dressed up in the black or the dark blue gown or whatever, and stuff when she's being figuring out all the plot or whatever i think i don't know something like that it's been a long time since i've seen it yeah i don't i don't think i've seen it since it came out in theaters but it was i mean everyone in my neck of the woods loved it yeah i mean it was a strong film it was much more uh a princess romance film than (laughs) what he normally did even when he tried to do those he had a lot of trouble on his own thumbelina i think was a, a a staggering mess and, uh, as, that that's one of my my as a kid I loved Thumbelina I watched it oh, okay. so many times landed it landed with the intended audience yeah. of like well yeah. that's perfect then I mean it, it amazes me any film has got its legions of fans it's amazing you know like I, I worked on Fire and Ice and that film was a complete disaster as far as box office and everything else but boy I, when I go to conventions <laughs> and stuff it's like number the number three thing people come up to me about and stuff so. <laughs> Just have no idea how it's going to land. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's also a lot depends on those fans that want, not fans, the people who saw it and saw it over and over, especially in the day of uh, video cassette and stuff like that. VHS, baby. Yeah. 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 And they just see it over and over and they just lock into it if they're at a certain age and stuff. And then they grow up with it. I mean, you can say the same thing about a lot of live action films that are just really god awful. (laughs) Yeah. You know, but, you know, people have fan, you know, it's like the whole um, uh, Goonies thing. It's an awful, awful film if you watch it with an adult eye. But, boy, it's got its fans and stuff. So. 100% agree. Yeah. So, so jumping ahead a little bit, um, sure. this is awesome hearing some of the, the these stages of earlier on in your career. So in 2012... Uh, after, I know we're going to go through X-Men Evolution for a while, but in 2012, you had a several episode run directing another one of my favorite animated superhero shows, Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Mm-hmm. 
how had anim I'm just super curious how did animation, especially like television animation, did you see it change within that decade uh, between uh, evolution and Avengers? Um well, at that point, the big change as far as uh, being a director from one to the next is the advent of using um, um, uh, animatics. I think that was on that film where we, this series, we were using animatics, which was a um, way of, you, you put the storyboards on film and you shoot them and you cut them together as if you're cutting together real film and stuff. You work with an editor. Back in Evolution, that wasn't anything anyone had heard of doing, except in, if you were in features, because it was a, an enormous cost and seemed like a silly waste of time. On Evolution, you would just uh, slug and time your boards, send them off. <laughs> Or, or, and you'd send them to the, you know, the network or the producers or whatever. And they'd get a big stack of storyboards, you know, like two, a foot to two foot tall or whatever. And it's supposed to go through it, but I'm assuming very few of them did because it, it's very difficult to read page after page of storyboards. Um, so the, the whole idea of the uh, animatic was a huge boon for the network and anyone wanting to actually get an idea of what the show was about ahead of time. And as opposed to the other way. So, you know, they could actually give you notes on the show as opposed to just hoping that they catch everything from the script to the storyboard and, and then worry about it when it comes in color. So what was, the was a big difference. Yeah. What was the vibe like on Avengers versus X-Men what? Evolution? What the vibe like? What was the atmosphere oh. working for it versus Well it's a whole that that was uh well, on um, uh, X-Men Evolution, it was a very collaborative thing because the producer, Boyd Kirkland, he, you know, he brought in a lot of people he knew and trusted and, and wanted to work with them creatively. Uh, so, you know, a lot of times we'd break stories down and stuff when we'd go to lunch. You know, we'd all go to all him and the directors would go to lunch every day and you know, discuss ideas for upcoming stories or, you know, what help you know, ask for help for trying to figure this out or that out and whatnot and it was much more uh of everyone everyone working together um avengers by the time i only worked on the second season of avengers because uh they the crew had turned over at that point and frank parr who was also one of the directors on uh evolution was now the producer of it or the supervising director or whatever his title was on it and so I, I was hired to help after someone else had dropped out one of the other directors had dropped out and i replaced him and it was different because pretty much the scripts were the scripts at that point you'd, you'd be able to talk to them a little bit about gee can you i'm going to have trouble doing this and the story editors or whatever would you know try to fix it for you or whatever or tell you why you should fix, do it that way or but why it needs to be that way. Um, but it was a lot less collaborative. And, you know, while it was still working with friends and stuff, it was much more of a uh, a real serious production, whereas Evolution it was much more of us just kind of having a good time putting together a show. <laughs> yeah, and I wonder, I mean, the Avengers as a brand, as property, exploded, especially, yeah. you know, when you were on on earth earth mightiest versus you know the x-men which at the time i guess you had the movies though i mean yeah. it was 
I, I forget it came out during the same time as the first X-Men movie. It came well, out like was, a few months after the movie, I think. Yeah. That they, was why we did the show. That's why the yeah, show yeah. was ordered because of the yeah. movie. And that's why there are a few of the things that were in the movie actually made it into our show, mainly uh Professor Xavier's wheelchair. That was the exact same wheelchair, and uh the fact that Professor X spoke with uh, a British accent. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so, uh, someone D- definitely doing a uh, uh, a take on him, uh, Patrick Stewart, and uh, but pretty, that was kind of the intention. Is it was Marvel's wife who was at that time a toy company, Toy Biz. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanted to find another avenue of toys that they could do that they owned solely on their own. You know, they were doing all the X Men movie toys, yeah, but they so also true. wanted to do a a, a uh, line of them that they own completely. And so they were paying for this show all on their own and hoping to create a whole uh, new line that was popular. Unfortunately, the timing was bad for them because their main distributor for KB Toys was, um, I mean, for Toy Biz was KB Toys, which had just got pirated out by uh, and destroyed and sold for parts. And so there was KB Toys went under and so Toy Biz no longer had a play, an outlet, really. You know, they, I don't think they were really much in toy, uh, Toys R Us or anything else at that time. And so, unfortunately, they couldn't figure out how to sell toys for our show or any other show at that point. What's, I remember buying a, a Nightcrawler from Evolution yeah. Action Figure at a KB Toys that we would always hit on our way back home at, at sure. the local outlets and being so excited. I was able to get one that saw the whole rest of the line. And the next time I went back, like, KB Toys was gone. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm stuck. I just have Nightcrawler. So yeah, this, this no, rings very true. Yeah, unfortunately, their line of X-Men Evolution Toys was very short. Yeah, there were a couple of Wolverines. There was a Toad. Uh, a Blob. Uh, you had a blob? Storm. Yeah, there's a Blob. A blob. A storm, storm, yeah. 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 And the greatest and, character ever, Spike. Was there a Spike? I guess I haven't looked at these in a while, I guess. Yeah. I've got a box of them somewhere in the garage, but... Um, yeah, and, and they did some larger figures like uh, uh, Barbie doll size, twelve inch figures, where they had lockers that they <laughs> they could put, go into their uh, civvies and uniforms and back and forth and stuff. And uh, and they had some motorbike ones, you know, remote control motorbikes where Sabretooth and and um, Wolverine would, you know, you could control them and they'd go zipping around. And they also had. Uh, Talkback toys. I think they only got as far as Cyclops and Wolverine. I remember the Cyclops one. I definitely had the Cyclops one. Were you heavily involved on the toy end? Not really, no. Or anything, or did they send them to you? Because I worked at Marvel during Wolverine and the X-Men, and Toy Biz was still around, and they were feeding each other designs of the characters and the figures. Yeah, we, we were given some input from the toy company, or mostly it was Marvel, because Marvel was the toy company. They would tell us things like, gee, we really want a Wolverine to have for his color to be more orange, because that's a better color for toys, or you know something like that. And uh, it pretty much, you know, we did our thing, and they did their thing, though, and they didn't give us too much hassle. Um or you know back there wasn't a lot of back and forth you know the, i i know one of the toy designers who's no longer in that business but he, you know he would 
very excited and he'd send his stuff occasionally and whatnot. Like I still have a, uh, the mock-up of the wheelchair somewhere. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and they sent us, I think like a couple of heads of characters or something just to look at it and stuff. So, but uh, other than that, we were so busy and they were so busy that we never really went, had a lot of uh, back and forth between us. Well, I, I'm sorry to hear that because, well, I'm sorry to hear that the, the, the toy line didn't, reach its full potential because i remember when that line came out everyone wanted gene they wanted a rogue it was yes and they never got there yeah oh man well part of it too is back in those days i don't know what they think these days but i know back in those days they actually thought that this we can't sell girls characters to boys because that's the only collector i don't think they had a clue that girls were a huge fan base for the show uh, kids WB who was running the show uh, knew it but because they, we were beating Pokemon and they figured out the only way that we could be beating Pokemon is by having girls watching stuff <laughs> along with the boys. It couldn't just be a boys show and beat Pokemon. It had to be both. But I don't think the toy company understood that. And so there was very rare that even in the original line of X-Men toys there weren't that many uh, um females involved you know or they were very rare that you'd see it would be done in limited numbers and such because they just didn't get the idea that no the the people that like x-men really like the women a lot yeah a lot of people i mean x-men fans love the female characters so much and whether you're boy or girl i just remember being on the message boards at the time and people really wanting Iceman, Gene, Rogue, you know, and, and wanted the line to continue. So I'm sorry that it boiled down to a distribution problem, especially yeah. with KB Toys, because that's that's disheartening. Yeah, and unfortunately, that all added up to it only having four seasons. Uh, because, yeah, because Marvel was paying for it completely on out of their own pocket, which is something they never did after that or even before that. But after that, definitely, that was the last show they paid for as they were toy biz. You know, afterwards, obviously, when Marvel became Marvel and started doing the, the MCU and stuff, that was a whole different thing. But at that point, they they were paying for that out of their pocket. And so they wanted to make it. They were you know, had, had a contract with Kids WB to put X amount of ads on the air, which Kids WB loved. And nice. they could never quite get that together. And mainly because they couldn't, the whole KB problem. So that they kept begging. I think after season two, they started begging for the uh, Kids WB to let them out of this five-year contract, five-season contract. And Kids WB said, no, you, we'll let you out of not putting the ads on, because, but we've got a hit show. We want to keep this thing going. This is good for us. And so finally on the fifth, before the, somewhere in the middle of the fourth season or something, Marvel continued whining and asking to be let out of it. And they finally said, fine, we're, we're, you know, you're giving us a headache. You know, <laughs> you, you, we can, you can wrap up at the end of season four. Dang. That is so interesting. Wow. That. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I need like a moment to digest this. This, is, <laughs> yeah, this, yeah. this explains yeah, I, so much of why my favorite show like went off the air after. Yeah, after I mean, they had a hit show on their hands and yeah. Marvel didn't care. Mm-hmm. They just wanted to stop having to put that money out. So, 
I didn't. I didn't know that Marvel fully funded X Men Evolution, and they were banking on toy sales. I mean, now in retrospect, you're like, yeah, you're like, wow, that really didn't pan out the way they thought it was going to pan out. But you no, ended up having it was a, a bad idea. Yeah, but there, there may have been some other investors, but they were. Yeah. It was basically Marvel money, and that's why it was all. Um, is that is way, that? So. Is that why season four was shorter than the other season? I, I assume it was. I assume that at that point, that's, you know, some of the storylines got a little truncated and whatnot. And, uh, but I, the, the good news is that we knew early enough going into season four or by the middle of the season four that they could actually write up basically a capper, you know, some way to put a button on it all and, Say this is, we know the show's over, and instead of just leaving it on a cliffhanger like we did Wolverine and the X Men, you know, just oh, you know. that that is a conversation for another day because we yeah. were covering Age of Apocalypse here on 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 the podcast, and that ending for X Men uh, Wolverine and the X Men just got me so excited because Nate Gray is my favorite character. Mm. Sure. And and then you guys also had other stories planned, like with Wanda and House of M. So, yeah, sure. I mean, we, that was intended to go on, but that not it wasn't due to Marvel in that case. It was due to them not paying for any of it, Marvel at that point. But they had outside investors who couldn't get along and decide who wanted to put the majority money in or whatever. And because I I assume it's been, it's been a while, but I think it had a lot to do with the fact that. They couldn't figure out how to turn a profit either. The investors on it, it was a, it was a hit show, but that that didn't do anything for them. It did something for the network, but hmm. you know, unless the way it would have helped them is if they had other shows that they wanted to sell to the networks and stuff, and by using Wolverine and the X Men as a calling card kind of thing. But they could not agree on who would put the 60% in and who would put the 40% in. They, you know, neither of them wanted to be putting more than the other and you know, whatever. So, so it fell apart and we, we started early development on that and it just never went anywhere. Oh uh, so. man, that just, did, we, we've seen some of those sketches leave for, for Wolverine and the X-Men and what you guys had planned with Jean in her traditional nineties outfit and bring in havoc. It looked great. I'm sorry that the second season never came into fruition. Yeah, no, I was too. <laughs> it was it was a good show to work on. What so. can, can I just ask off script here? Was Nate Gray ever in the talks? X Man ever in the talks? Did you guys get that far? You know, I don't think so. I don't think he was going to. I hadn't heard of him being brought in at that point. Yeah. But uh, you know, we were, we were doing Deadpool. We were doing um, yeah. God, there were a lot of others that I can't think of right now. I, I've got a file. Yeah, I think you had magic. Havoc. Yeah. I'm trying to remember. We've all seen the, the sketches online, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. But yeah, I, I don't recall it. I don't know if he was in it or not, but yeah, it may at that point it was basically just me and Boyd, the producer. He was uh doing uh expressions and attitude sheets, and I was doing some expressions and attitude sheets, but I didn't really know what he was working on, and he would assign me these characters and he'd take the other characters himself. So I, he may have had Nick Cray. I really don't know. So. Sorry. I'm going to, I'm going to kick it back to Cody. I'm sorry. I had no, to ask about me. <laughs> I had to ask about me. Yeah. Uh, it's okay. Uh, I guess since we're on, since we're on different X-Men and since we're on different characters, uh, Stephen, when did you first hear about the X-Men? 
Well, I back when I was a kid, little kid, I, I we'd all go to the uh, not the comic store. There were no comic stores, but I'd go. We'd go to the newsstand and pick up comics you know, once or twice a week or whatever with my father, and we would. Um, you know, I, I picked up X-Men. So back in the early days, I, you know, I had the first few X-Men, you know, with Stanley and Jack Kirby doing them and stuff. So that I knew them from then. And to be honest, I didn't know much. I, I kind of stopped at a certain point way before uh, any of the Claremont stuff started or anything like that, you know. I, and I kind of vaguely knew about it a little bit because my kids were picking up X-Men at that point. So, But yeah, to me, I thought, Beast, Wolverine and Beast were the same character because I, I was just casually looking at it and I saw, yeah. wow, look at the hair. It must be the same character. It's just blue <laughs> this time, you know, whatever. You know. I had no idea. I did not stay up on them at all. And I had to take a deep dive when um, I got hired by Boyd to work on X-Men Evolution. So and kind of learn all, everything I could as fast as I could. Were you able to? Yeah, like what was your what was your X Men diet like after you got hired on? It was pretty heavy. Um, you know, <laughs> at that point, Children of the Atom had just started coming out too, which helped a little bit. So I, I could read some of those and look at them, as opposed to uh, you know reading some. You, you go back and you look at the original X Men, and it's, I mean, I, I loved them as a kid, but boy, there's some real awful stuff in them. <laughs> the real, sexism and just just awful awful stuff i mean and, they call they call gina frail <laughs> yeah and, and, and professor it, x is clearly lusting after her or something oh <laughs> we have discussed that many times yeah. it's 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 oh but wait so you're doing the deep dive you're you're on evolution yeah. you're doing the deep dive you're trying to amass as much information about the x-men yeah. as possible was there a particular character that was your favorite that kind of stood out as you're doing this deep dive into into the characters um well i, I thought night i i thought nightcrawler had a lot of potential and i kind of saw him as something that i could put my, my stamp on as far as not just costuming wise but the way he moved and stuff I mean, i i didn't care for the weird you know um three-fingered weird foot that he had, you know, with the one in the back, the heel turned into a finger and the two others. So, so I, I uh, turned him into more like a cat, you know, more like a, you know, typical um, feline type character that could, that had a, an animal anatomy that was normal for an animal, not a human, obviously. Uh, so there was that. And, um, and I, I was kind of interested quite a bit in Rogue because I, you know, I was somewhat aware of the show. I, I maybe had seen maybe one episode or two episodes of the uh, 90s show. And I couldn't stand the, the whole Dolly Parton Southern Belle approach to that character. You know, it just seemed like, boy, is this just like some fanboy's fantasy of a superhero, <laughs> you know, humongous breasts and big poofy hair and, you know, some fanboy that had never gotten out of the you know, basement, you know, I thought, uh, so, you know, so she was kind of the one that I focused on initially thought if I could crack her and turn her into something else, then I think the rest of the show would follow. And it did. It turns out, you know, once I kind of got her down and figured out that she could be goth and 
you know, and, and obviously this is with the producers help boys yeah. help and stuff. And, you know, the other people too, the other directors, you know, Frank Parr was one of the other directors who, who was the supervising director on um, Avengers second season. You know, he did some of the early costuming because I couldn't wrap my head around quite all that. I was not a, a superhero costume guy. You know, I kept thinking, geez, shorts, that's so weird. And, you know, all that stuff. Um, so he kind of cracked to some of those early costumes. But then I was the one who kind of figured out who they were as people and stuff, you know, who, you know, especially Rogue, you know, figuring out that, you know, she's not a Southern Belle by any stretch. She's, you know, trailer trash. And, you know, she, she's got a Southern accent, but it's not a refined Southern accent whatsoever. It's, it's something that, you know, Southerners would laugh at as being really, uh, like the difference between a British accent and a, uh, um uh, uh yeah, cockney accent cockney accent thank yeah you. yes yeah yeah that type of thing so so once we kind of got that in i, I was able to kind of work around the others I, I wish i'd had more time because but to kind of play with some of the others that i didn't quite get nailed down sufficiently like mystique and even storm i think was rushed it's just a certain point you have to kind of go with it because it wasn't enough. We didn't know enough about what they were going to be used for in the show. Mm -hmm. We wrote, we knew what her function was going to be throughout the show. So, um, you know, she was easier to deal with. You know, when you're doing character designs, or at least when I'm doing character designs, I like to have as much information about how the characters, their personality, how they're going to be used in the show and stuff. And, that way it helps me refine them so to what they need to be. So they're not just a design, they're a fully, you know, birth personality. Well, so, so. Even when, when you so. say used in the show, how much of the, the early storylines or trajectory of where X-Men Evolution was going to go, what did, what did that look like when you started designing? How much of that was still amorphous or how much was set in stone already? Well, we, we'd had a lot of discussions going in early on. There was a Bible that was kind of hit and miss for a lot of people that was created. Um, I mean, it had so, some of the initial setup in it, like who, who the characters could be and not personality-wise necessarily, but there may have been some of that too. But I don't think we looked at the Bible much as a group. I mean, I think Boyd and the uh, his executive producer looked at it and probably the story editor and stuff, but I don't think we ever sat down and went through it on our own. Um, but, you know, this long time ago, over 20 years ago, yeah, I yeah, yeah. maybe misremember it. <laughs> but, but we understood and we kind of talked through the idea that, well, she's going to start off as a bad guy and they have to try to turn her and, you know, things like that. And, and some of that what might have been in the Bible is still unknown as to how, we were going to handle the character personality-wise and stuff, and, and and that was important. And I think some of that was uh, handled once we kind of figured out who she was, once we knew she was goth, and once we knew that she was trailer trash and stuff. We knew that how we wanted her to behave and stuff. I mean, if we'd had even more time, I think we would have gone even deeper into that. Uh, unfortunately, development time was very limited. I think we had a couple of months to develop a lot of the characters before we actually had to start producing episodes and stuff. Really? So, wow. Wait, yeah. so how did you get involved with X-Men Evolution? And do I remember correctly that when we saw you at WonderCon, you said that originally the concept for it was more like a Muppet Baby style X-Men? Well, 
I, I don't th I don't know that that was the the actual plan to do that, but that's how we everyone assumed it would be. We knew it was going to be <laughs> young, you made younger, and at that point, one of the big hit shows with Muppet Babies mm -hmm. around that time. So they were doing a lot of that type of stuff with a lot of shows. Suddenly, they were baby this, baby that, and so we thought, oh, God, is this going to turn into that and stuff?" I don't know that it was ever seriously planned that way but that's kind of how it was discussed amongst ourselves as artists and stuff but oh boy we've got x-men babies coming here or something, you know? so, i'm just curious um, if you have a drawer yeah. full of x-men muppet baby style no i do, do not i do not have that <laughs> that might have been fun on a diff whole different level but that was yeah. <laughs> but we always saw this as sort of a uh uh, soap opera. We, we we were not the people involved were not um, big into action you know, and fighting and constant fighting and stuff and all that. We 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 fought against that concept of of having a big action sequence in moment in every act. You know that that's pretty typical for that type of show. We we avoided that like crazy. We wanted to have it more about the characters stuff so that's kind of where we went with it as much as we could so I, you know a lot of times that that would uh be forced into the storytelling after the fact after some of the scripts were written and you'd have to go back and kind of rework it. it's like no we don't want to have these characters fight just because one's a good guy and one's a bad guy we want to understand why they're fighting and stuff and, and if they're gonna why do they need to fight if there's there's no reason to be so so, so you're doing. You did the deep dive. You, there were murmurs of how the show could be, but how were you approached on 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 joining the project? Well, at that point, I was working at the same uh, studio as uh, Boyd. I've known Boyd for years. I mean, he had um, worked. He owned a company in Utah that was doing um, layouts and stuff for uh, shows for like the. Um, uh, Ruby Spears and Hanna Barbera and stuff like that, and a, a company I was a studio I was working for had hired his company to do layouts for some director videos that we were doing, and then uh, and I'm not sure what why he decided to, but he left his own company and gave it to other people to run, and decided he wanted to ca come to California and get into it more of the. Uh, animation aspect and less of the layout aspect you know, he was a layout artist and you know which you know does all the backgrounds and stuff like that and kind of places the characters essentially for the animator um but he wanted to get into storyboarding and he wanted to get into acting so he came actually working for us at that studio and, and i kind of helped him get into understanding how to make a character act and stuff i gave him my knowledge and then so we uh, kind of kept in touch here and there. He, he worked in, on a, um, I'm not sure what he was working on at that, at Saban. We, we kind of hooked back up at Saban after, well, yeah, I did work for him on Batman and stuff like that too. But at Saban, he uh, was working on something and then I got hired to direct on another show. And while we were there, I think he was offered to take over some Avengers show they were doing at the time, he, they asked him to go ahead and revamp it and do whatever he needed to. 
I know some Avengers show that was not very canon or anything else. Yeah, Avengers oh, United They Stand, I believe what it was called. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Yeah. And so he he was wanting to get me on it and was doing character designs and stuff. So we started doing that. And then I think he got the offer to work on F- X-Men Evolution as a producer. And he wanted me on it, as well as some other people he worked with and stuff. And so I joined it, joined on that uh, during X-Men Evolution as a director, I was hired initially. And then because we didn't know what we were doing at that moment, development-wise, we a, a lot of us just kind of pitched in and started doing development. Like I said, Frank did some the initial ideas for costuming and stuff, and I kind of was working on the characters. And eventually, I think it came down to that I, I took a lot of Frank's concepts, costume-wise, and kind of put them on my characters, and it started to come together. Um, and Boyd just decided, okay, you're the character designer on this, as what well, was the director, and uh, that's pretty much how it went. I mean, it was by like everything in this business, it's who you know, and you know, for networking and friends and all that stuff, you know, you get your next job through them and stuff. So, so it's in this early stages of development, you've been brought in, different people are, are pitching different things. What was what was the communication, I'm curious, between the, the studios who have just had this X-Men live action movie and then Marvel Comics that's starting to do a pretty big like rebrand and relaunch of the X-Men under like Grant Morrison, big popular new X-Men run. And you guys are in the middle. What what was the communication like? Was there was there a push and pull? I know you mentioned like Xavier needing the the Patrick Stewart inspired accent. Yeah. What what other pushes and pulls were between those? Very two very little. Courses? They pretty much left us alone to do what we wanted, which so is pretty yeah. weird. I mean, that uh, is weird. You know, it, it, they they would kind of look at what we were doing design wise and kibitz a little, but they didn't care all that much. They, they, occasionally, when we had an issue, they would say, "Well, why don't you try this?" Like with Sabretooth, we were having trouble coming up with something because of that. You know, the traditional Sabretooth was in that bizarre yeah. costume with all I the fur around it. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so, you know, we, we were having trouble coming up with anything. So they said, you know, why don't you try them in an overcoat? Why? Well, uh, we're putting them in an overcoat. Like, Can you show <laughs> us? No, we won't show yeah. you, but just try to put them in an overcoat. So, <laughs> so yeah, that yeah, we were getting stuff like that. I mean, like I said, the most input they gave us was that they said, here, why don't you use Professor X's chair, the same one we're using, which was great because that, we didn't have to design that. And uh, the Patrick Stewart thing, we, but at that point, everyone knew Patrick Stewart was Professor yeah. X. Yeah. It was all over the news and stuff. And the only thing that they gave us input other than, originally, we wanted to put all the characters in the traditional Kirby yellow and black jumpsuits. Oh, Even yeah. if there was some variation on them, we still wanted those to be their main colors. And they said, no, we have to have them with their own, own traditional colors or what we know as their new traditional colors now. You know, Jean had to have green. Um, Kitty had to have blue. Uh, you know, that type of thing. You know, there, there were others like that, too. So that they gave input in that. And I think that was more of a toy decision, too, as far as that goes, because it's harder to sell toys that all look like they're wearing the same costume than does having different costumes. Yeah. And then uh, we uh, also, they said, 
we, we said, you know, we get these mutton chops look stupid on Wolfram. And they said, okay, we don't care. But but could you please give them that weird, some sort of weird points? Something. So I came up with something that looked like a normal hairstyle, not something that looked like it spent hours hairspraying, like <laughs> even in the movies and stuff. So, but yeah, that, you know, that was pretty much it. There. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's just, it's like, come on, no one's hair really looks that way. It looks okay, sort of, in the comic, but it, it doesn't make any sense. But but to piggyback off of what Cody was asking, it's interesting because Wolverine later on in Morrison's X-Men would have a haircut similar towards the one he was having in Evolution at the time. And I believe it was Frank Quitely who illustrated it. So I think the idea yeah, was I, your approach too, which is what is a realistic hairstyle for someone like Logan? Yeah, I, I think, I you know, I don't know that I ever saw that if I saw that first, I don't think so. But I think I think there's a lot of you know cross pollination, unintentional. Or, oh yeah, absolutely. But not um, mandated or anything like that. I think it was just you know people that were starting to think the same way, or they saw something they liked in us, and they and we saw something. You know, when I was doing Wolverine's costume, I, I kind of looked at a lot of stuff and finally came up with ours. And it, I don't know that. I know there's a similar costume that came out after that for, uh, that looked like Wolverine, but I don't I don't know that they copied me or I copied them or anything. I don't remember. It's, no, it's, it was a long time ago. No, it's all cross pollination, yeah. yeah. as you were yeah. saying. It. I I am curious though. With every you know, with all the communication that was or was not happening, did did Mister Stan Lee? ever weigh in on the series no he, he, he was i mean i know he was given some sort of executive producer credit but at that point he was not involved whatsoever he was busy doing his own thing and whatnot and i worked with him years later but he was not really at all involved with x-men evolution or any of those properties at the time i mean he was just being given this you know the credit uh, honorary mention credit basically that yeah. he got because he was being paid and whatnot. So, did he? Now, Avia Rod was much more involved than he was, and he was kind of barely involved. So. Oh, Avi, yeah. But wait, did Stanley ever acknowledge that you you did X Men Evolution when you worked with him? I was like, hey, that was a great, interesting interpretation. You know, I, I don't know. I you know, I I don't know if ever, if it ever came up. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it. You know, we had plenty of conversations and stuff, but usually it was about the project we were working on. Yeah. Um, well, I don't know. Good you know, question. I I wish I'd, I I wish I had mentioned it to him, but I'd be willing to bet he probably never saw it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, yeah. I don't think unless he was directly brought in for a cameo or something like that, he was ever that uh, intrinsically involved or, or even that all that interested. I mean, you can hear that in some of his uh, interviews and stuff where people are asking him questions about even the movies and stuff. And it's clear he's just kind of riffing. And he doesn't, he, he, you know, he's very good at making it sound like he sort of knows what's, what's going on. But he, if you listen to it, you go, I don't think he saw that, did he? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. We had Margaret Lesh on the, on the podcast a couple months ago, and she was talking about Stan. And she said Stan just 
really did trust the people around him to make some of those decisions because yeah. we were talking about the X-Men, the anime series. And mm-hmm. she said that he was, he delegated quite a bit yeah. and that he oh, I don't was. Doubt it. Yeah. 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 I don't doubt that for a minute. I mean, he was very, uh, I mean, that, that's sort of how he worked in the comics too. If you, yeah. if you read anything about how he worked, he basically, uh, you would spit, ball ideas and then he'd let the artist go run off with it or the other writers and stuff and and maybe he'd come in and you know do dialogue and whatnot but it, he wasn't a really hands-on type of guy he's more of a uh, uh let's make a deal <laughs> let's get something going and then you know <laughs> you know he, he was much better at that the promotional idea of it and stuff he you know that was his forte you know sitting down and actually doing the day-to-day work of writing something. I mean, he did some of that but early on, but I, I think he soon found that that was kind of a drag, and he's much better at something else. So so I think delegating was clearly his way of working throughout his career. So I don't think he really – I doubt he even knew that X-Men Evolution was being made. <laughs> the truth. <laughs> you know, at that point, he was just kind of one of the names that was being – thrown on the credits and it, it really uh, unless he found out something was being made and he wasn't getting his cut of it or something then you know that was another issue but he had a whole different deal going on that didn't matter if we made five series or one so or none so. <laughs> so interesting this is awesome um okay so i've a lot of different designs, a lot of different voices. Um, is there, I have two parts for this. One, what was your personal favorite design? I know you said Rogue. Besides Rogue, what was your personal favorite of the, the character costume designs? And is there a character that you wanted to include and you you were a big advocate for after you're your diving deep into X-Men lore when you were getting ready for the yeah. show that you guys never got to include? Well, uh... The, the three characters that I liked the best as far as um, having designed were, were Rogue because it was kind of groundbreaking as far as and show cracking. You know, we figured out the rest of the show from her and um, and Wanda. You know, that, that was a big deal. Wanda was um, awesome as well. Yeah. yeah. And that, that was completely something we came up with all on our own, that whole idea that she was damage beyond belief and that she was much more contemporary rich witchy than this fantasy you know witch you know um that she was in the comics where it was just like well you're you're a uh stripper witch i guess or something in the comics <laughs> yeah but um she went through many iterations in the yes comics. yeah uh, and um and then boom boom I think was a, a big oh. one because th- she was a real interesting so character because there was not a lot of done with her, but we all kind of thought, boy, she had a tremendous amount of um, possibilities and potential. Um, in fact, we were going to include her into the first season, and we we kind of did it. Thought we were kind of planting her as a background character, and we ended up not ever calling her anything, Tabby or anything other than to ourselves. And then by the time we actually, I think in season two, created Boom Boom, the, you know, the stories for Boom Boom, it's like uh, we discarded that design because we didn't think it was strong enough. 
and we kind of put a new design for her and stuff. So, so if you look, the, the, she's actually in a different character. She's got weird pigtails or something. Or, you know, <laughs> um, I think she's in like the camp out episode or something, or when they're all going away on a field trip or something that you can see her in the background, but she never went anywhere at that point. But I, she, I to... she had a tremendous amount of storytelling that we could do with her, I think. She had swagger when she was finally introduced. I mean, that's a character that also gets so much recognition from X-Men Evolution. And she doesn't have that TLC anywhere else, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, she'll pop up here and there in the comics and, you know, be a fun solo series. But you guys really did a great job putting her front and center. And fans loved her in the yeah. series. Yeah. But I think she had a much more interesting, relatable storyline than I think a lot of uh, the other characters did. I mean, the other characters all had wildly superhero storylines and stuff and how they got their powers and stuff. Whereas she, you know, coming from an abusive father and, you know, someone manipulating her. And, and clearly she was more uh, fluid than other the other characters and whatnot. And, you know, I, I think she had... And I'm still surprised that no one's done more with her at this point in comics and stuff. Or maybe they haven't. I haven't seen it. I know um, they used her in uh, New Wave. A oh, I bit did. For comedic effect. Oh, <clears throat> my God. Agents of Hate, the, the yeah. next wave. She Next wave, that's it, yes. Is yeah. hysterical in yeah. that comic. It's a, they, And they, they sort of transplanted that personality into some of the Krakoan X-Men that are yeah. happening right now. And especially, did you read Exterminators? I just, Cody? I just oh, finished yeah, reading did. Exterminators this past week and Boom Boom is one of like the main, the core five. And it's funny because it's it's her and it's it's Laura Kinney and it's it's a few others. And it's it's very much, it's it reminded me a lot, honestly, of, and I know we have some questions about it coming up, kind of the 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 girls' night out episodes of Evolution, but if it was like a whole a whole five issue series, and Boom Boom is super prominent, but is she? I have to check that out. What's it, it was, it was exterminators. exterminators. Yeah. Oh, okay. But wait, Cody, you, you know why? Because we've had Leah Williams on this podcast before, and she she Evolution. Up. She's a big X Men Evolution fan. That's the writer for Exterminators, and her crush growing up was Goth Rogue, and she <laughs> loved she loved Boom Boom, and she loved X twenty three slash Wolverine slash Laura. So I'm just piecing it together. Of course, Matt, Exterminators would be heavily influenced by X Men Evolution because she grew up loving that. Yeah, you got to pick it. You up. should check it out. It's it it feels very much like a love letter to the misadventures the writer of, of it, Evolution. Yeah, yeah, Leah Williams. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay, I'll have to definitely check that out. Yeah, yeah I'll I'm glad someone's time. doing something with it. Yeah. Oh, okay, <laughs> thank you. Yeah, I, I, I'm glad someone did something with it. Uh, you know, uh, we were always. I know there was a X Men Evolution comic, but tell you the truth, we we had at one point tried to convince them to let us let us do it, you know, that way it'd be something we could do in between seasons or something like that, but they, they had to rush and get it done by other people. And so we had no idea what they were doing with it. And we don't know if it worked counter to our stuff or with it or <laughs> anything else. And it, it always kind of worried us a little bit that they'd explore areas that we hadn't and didn't want to and stuff. So, but I am glad that someone is kind of riffing on the X-Men evolution thing a little bit. So well, it always seemed like there, there was definitely potential there. I, yeah. I, I feel everyone, the, the X-Men evolution is still such a major part of the X-Men conversation. And this leads into my next question. It's funny. We were, I was talking to another podcaster who does Buffy Slayer Fest 98 
Mm-hmm. And it, it, is it true that Charisma Carpenter was the inspiration for for Gene, your designs for Gene, and Chris Klein was was Cyclops? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> you know, we, I mean, we were. Yeah. I mean, Chris Klein obviously wasn't a Buffy person, but uh, no. uh, but we, we were definitely fans of Buffy. And Boyd Kirkland, the producer, was a huge fan of Buffy. He got me into it and stuff, and Angel and so forth, um, and. I don't even know if he knew at that point that uh, Buffy was sort of Joss's way of riffing on Kitty or not, yeah. but yeah. definitely he, he recognized the potential. Of, I'm doing a high school show. I want to do it like Buffy. I wanted to have the same residence and stuff and kind of do a lot of the uh, winking at the camera stuff with stuff. And that's why we dropped a lot of uh, references visually. Oh, into the dance. It. The, yeah. the Faith Buffy dance, which gets yeah. homaged all the time yeah. <laughs> online, because yeah. and and people loved that. Did did they know that at the time? I feel like that's something that definitely came in after the show that people were aware of it. But at the time, were people saying we got that reference? Uh, you know, I don't know if they did it, because you yeah, realize the the internet was a lot different place then. Yeah, uh, you know, Facebook wasn't around, and I there were a lot of things that were happening that we did not know were happening. And plus, you know, being busy and professionals and stuff in the industry, we didn't spend a lot of time on Facebook, even though now we all do and stuff. Getting out there while we're working and stuff. But uh, we had no idea what people were reacting to necessarily. I mean, we were more concerned with what network numbers we were getting and stuff. Um, but, you know, I don't think we knew much about people's actual reactions to it. We knew that the Lance and Kitty thing was sort of big. I don't know yeah. how we heard that. I think one of the, one of the production managers came, that came onto the show uh, told us some of that, and uh, we we knew that um, we knew that Crawler was kind of popular and stuff. But you know, frankly, we didn't know how popular Kitty was. I you know, until I started going to conventions and getting uh, commission requests or Kitty after Kitty, I had no <laughs> idea how big a deal she was. You know, we didn't, you know, she wasn't really that big a star of the show. She was kind of big, but, you know, the the biggest thing we did with her was the Lancity thing and the the girls' night out thing. Um, But, you know, we kind of saw her sort of a secondary character in a lot of ways. But, you know, apparently the viewers sure didn't. They saw her as a big thing. No, she was one of my favorites. She's one of my favorites, too, and I think definitely, like, as as one of the younger viewers at the time like you know it's it's the classic audience surrogate i think what's funny is she got to serve kind of the same role that she does when she's introduced to the x-men comics as well as like she was the younger entry point character that got to look up to to scott and gene just like i feel like we got to as a younger audience so kitty kitty was awesome yeah i I think she worked great in in general but the the amount of love for her was just astounding i mean i mean uh, on another note the fact that we didn't know stuff you know one time we went to um what was it i think at that point it was wolverine and the x-men we went to we were at comic-con and boyd and i were led into the audience they we weren't on the panel and i don't remember why maybe it wasn't wolverine and the X-Men. maybe it was something else uh we we were just in the audience and people came up to us 
And Boyd freaked out. He didn't know what was going on. He didn't. Re- I think I, I at that point had a little understanding of some of the popularity of X Men Evolution, but he didn't know that anyone would recognize us. He, anyway, so that was very staggering at that point to realize that not only did were they fans of the show, but they were fans of us, and they would recognize us at the comic convention and stuff. So it's very strange. Is go for it, Paul. Oh, I just wanted to ask a quick question because when we we've had the Leewalds on, you know, in the past, and they were prohibited from using Kitty because of Pride of the X Men. And I'm curious, did you get? It doesn't sound like you got any pushback with with Kitty. Did did they say you needed to include Jubilee given Jubilee's popularity just a few years prior? No, not that I'm aware of. I mean, I you know some of that was behind the scenes stuff that was above my pay grade, I guess, but. Mm-hmm. I had not heard any of that type of stuff whatsoever. I mean, it seemed like anything we wanted to do, they were fine with. In general, I mean, I'm sure there are some things that we had to deal with, obviously, on any TV show. But overall, it seemed like every idea we came up with, they were perfectly fine with. Marvel wasn't that interested, and Kids WB was happy that we were doing doing great work in the ratings and. Um, and you, like I said, we came up with that whole Wanda is damaged and stuff. And that, you know, that, and I don't know how many people caught that or not, but we, we came up with that idea after Buffy did the whole, she's in an insane asylum dreaming all this stuff. And we thought, who can we do that with? And we came up with, let, let's put, Wanda would be great to put in a straitjacket. Wow. Just, I- you know, I mean, that's an iconic Buffy episode. Um, I'm forgetting yeah. the title right now, but yes, where she's in in, in the insane yeah. asylum, and it sort of ends on that cliffhanger. Maybe she really is there yeah, and imagining right. everything. I didn't know that was the inspiration for the Wanda. Ep- oh man! Yeah, I mean, it, obviously not nearly the same thing, but it was no, no, sort no. of that image that we got stuck with and thought, "Wow, we have to do something like that." That was so wonderful that we we need to somehow find a way to put that in there. And that that was the kind of the genesis for the whole Wanda idea. But before I kick it back to Cody, one final Buffy question: because <laughs> season six of Buffy was kind of you know a, an inspo went with that. Was there ever a talk of a musical for X Men Evolution? You know, I, I I think the closest we got to it was that walk on the wild side thing, or the uh, yeah, or the Bayville <laughs> Sirens, whatever. Uh, you know. <laughs> I don't know that we that would have been a very difficult thing to pull off because all the moving parts, you know, it's one thing in a TV show where if you can if you got the clout to say, okay, I'm going to help you know have someone write these songs and then I'm going to get the actors actually to perform them, but to try to do it in a TV series is a lot harder thing. A lot too many different things. You got to get the composer. You got to get yeah, on board and make sure all those songs get approved and you got to make sure that everyone can actually sing and <laughs> and, and you, you know it, it, it would have been a, and then on top of it you know you have to somehow create visuals that work with it and, and you know it, it just it would have been a, a great idea to do and maybe if we continued who knows you know maybe we would have gotten that you know big enough balls to do that type of thing but I mean, you know, obviously, Joss Whedon had to uh, wait until he had the clout to say, I'm doing this. This is what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm doing it. Like and... Yeah. Uh, but I don't know that we were in that type of position. <laughs> I mean, we, we were just grateful we got away with what we could get away with. You know, like, you know, 
you know, doing things like um, saying that, well, the super soldier was actually program was actually the forerunner for the Weapon X program and, you know, kind of mushing things together that we thought made sense that the comics hadn't put together at that point and stuff, you know, things like that, that we thought, God, no one's stopping us from saying this. Okay, let's keep going. So, so to one, that's super crazy because it's like, because now what you just mentioned about the super soldier leading to the Weapon X and all that, that that's become a, a through line like yeah. since you guys, but it's like, for me, that that's been my, my own head cannon for a long time. And I'm realizing now it's, it's because evolution did that first. And then I've read things that came after that. Uh, like I know Morrison's X-Men run, but after yeah. you guys already gone, they, they start to retcon it back to that. And even in the ultimate comics universe, they start to tie, tie in all those together, but you guys, you guys do. Yeah, that. I, you know, I'm pretty sure that to my knowledge, we came up with that while we were sitting at, at a sushi bar. But That's I could be. <laughs> no, I love. I, yeah. So it sounds like you guys, did you guys talk a lot as artists, directors, writers, just about what you were watching and what you were reading? Was that a common part of yeah, the Yeah, there was a lot of that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, these uh, lunches were very freewheeling and stuff. And we would kind of bring up all types of stuff that were going on and whatnot and then someone would be like, yeah did you see buffy blah, blah, you know and you know yeah and then we'd kind of riff on that and then you know boyd would take the ideas to the uh story editor and stuff and he'd riff on it obviously and stuff and turn into further things and you know like you know the uh you know, we just pull from everything that we could think of that worked and made sense you know like the whole idea of uh wanda you know, cutting her hair the way she did. I mean, it didn't quite work because the animation wasn't there, but the whole idea was that, you know, she was going to cut her hair viciously. Like, <laughs> I think there was some uh, movie, uh, The River Runs Through It, where some character does that. Mm-hmm. And yeah. It, it was clear. She's nuts at this point. That's why she's <laughs> doing it. You know, I mean, that's like a some symbol for women over the deep edge, you know, start hacking at their hair and stuff. And, you know, and so we wanted to include that type of thing. So there were all types of things we were pulling from. So are there so, any are there any pop cultural homages or references that you you're surprised that the fans haven't caught on to yet? Like even even a few decades later, like well, somewhere, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there was the, there was those. Um, God, what was it now? The uh, thing I mentioned earlier. The uh, uh, now I'm blanking. <laughs> But you know, there, there, there are all types of things. You know, for instance, um, it wasn't so much pop culture stuff, but like I had in my head that Kurt was gay because he, I kind of based him a little bit on my son, my middle son, mm-hmm. and I oh, and I think the other directors and producers kind of understood that too. That's why when we uh, hooked him up with Amanda, we all, you know, the inside joke was Amanda. <laughs> so, you know, but I mean, we, we were doing a lot of that and sometimes it was small sometimes it was bigger like the Buffy references and stuff um, and the you know th- th- that whole uh, episode I mean that was kind of based on a whole idea of um, I think wasn't there a Buffy episode where the, the women kind of did something like that similar to it I think maybe I'm, I'm wrong I can't I'm trying to remember if they had a yeah I mean Buffy they had like uh, I think Slayer Fest, where it was just Cordelia and Buffy on their yeah. own misadventures and stuff yeah, maybe like that. Because that, that, I know Boyd was so deep into that. that yeah. You know, and he had the craft, and, the craft, which yeah, is the craft. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, yeah. 
Well, that I mean, the whole idea. I mean, Wanda was um, a oh, fool's a bulk. Yeah, yeah. one hundred. I'm just putting it together now. My mind is blown because I've never seen those yeah. parallels with with Wanda and and her. Yeah. yeah oh no, it, there was no uh, hiding that fact. I mean, all the um, uh, expression sheets and everything else. I, I pulled from Feruza Bulk and used her, and you know, it's like this is our Wanda. You know, so awesome. perfect. And, you know, and a lot of it had to do with the craft, obviously. So. Well, I, I love all these references that you, that you had there, the, the inspirations in pop culture, some through lines with characters like Kurt, who was probably secretly LGBT. It, I think that's why the show still resonates with a lot of people, because you were speaking up to your audience. You were layering these characters. There was a lot of thought behind it. Are, are there any little like nuggets and stuff like that that you had envisioned for some characters, maybe like Scott or Gene, that you just never got to flesh out in the in the story? Right. Boy, it's been a long time. I mean, we're asking you all the tough questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I know. Uh, I mean, you know, occasionally we'd come up with ideas that just didn't. Uh, well, that didn't fit in with the other things and stuff. Um, and also, to be fair, I I was only involved in season three and four as the character designer. I was working at DreamWorks at the time in story and stuff. So my involvement in some of the story discussions at that point were no longer. I was no longer involved. Uh, so they may have been having other story discussions that I wasn't privy to i'd only hear kind of the fallout and say okay well we need these characters and we need you know you know, you have to design this character and this is who that character is and stuff so i was a little less involved in seasons three and four than i would have loved to have been but so th there may have been other things on the uh, deck that were discounted or something i think pretty much everything we wanted to do in seasons one and two we did do hmm. um you know, there obviously come season two, we kind of felt more sure of ourselves. You know, season one was a lot more scattershot. We were still kind of working off of earlier ideas that we were kind of trying to get away from. And, you know, if you watch the first few episodes, it's definitely very stilted in a lot of ways, very much bing, bing, bing. You know, he meets an X-Men. He, you know, he joins the group, you know. Um, and it was Whereas come season two, things were, and even towards the end of season one, things were starting to layer in better. I mean, we, oh, we realized that accidentally Lance and Kitty liked each other, even though that wasn't written as as part of it. Uh, and sometimes that happens in storytelling and animations. Like these characters are doing something we didn't didn't expect or plan. You know, they're, they're like they like each other, and so we kind of went with that. Um, and there, there are other things like that that we did throughout, um, you know, like the whole Rogan Scott thing. I, I think we'd start to see oh, some of the episodes and going, she likes him. <laughs> that's why, why, why we don't understand why that's happening. So that's why Boyd wrote the Christmas episode. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, to really kind of hammer that down because he liked that whole idea and it kind of came out of the blue, but he, he wanted to make it part of our canon. That, you know, okay, no, this is a thing. It was, she's definitely feeling upset that she can't have Scott. So, and, and Scott's completely oblivious to the whole thing. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he wouldn't but, be a Summers if he was. Yes. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so. I, so, speaking of, of the show and, and the things it did, there's one character from the series that translated into the comics. 
who's having her 20th year anniversary this year, but fans adore. And that is X-23, Laura, Wolverine. I mean, did you have any idea the character was going to have this level of popularity? No. And, and to be quite honest, we we didn't get it. it, 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 it at that point, um, Fred Kyle was the, uh, was the, uh, showrunner the the person in charge the executive producer or whatever mm-hmm. and he came up with this character based i believe on his fiance's niece mm-hmm. uh and wanted to incorporate her in there you know he, he obviously had knew what he was doing because you know he, he created this whole <laughs> another parallel line of x-men storytelling that became like you said so popular and, and huge and it's just, you know, when I was first given um, the assignment to design it, like I said, I wasn't on at that point as far as story discussions or anything. I was just said, okay, here's this character. This is who she is. In fact, Craig even took photographs of his fiance's niece wearing sort of some of the same things and holding, I think she had spoons or knives stuck <laughs> between her fingers or something or whatever. Um, and so I kind of based the character on that and the doctor that was in that episode was based on his fiance. That's so cool. That's funny. So, so but you know, no, I mean, no, I, you could have knocked us over to think that this character would have become as huge as, I don't even think Fred could have imagined that, that she would be so huge, but she, you know, she's it's amazing. Bigger than ever now in the comics. Yeah. She's, I mean, Cody, I mean, as you know, she was just an exterminators. She's killing it on the Krakoan X-Men. I mean, everyone. She's had, she's had so many defining defining arcs right now even just as part of different teams let alone a few years ago she was the all-new wolverine yeah it's uh did you did you know she was going to be in logan the movie before i think we had heard that that was happening um didn't know much more about it than that and i was very pleased overall with how she came off i i wish yeah. they hadn't introduced all those other kids Frankly. Yeah, I think that kind of uh, undermined the whole idea of who she was. Um, you know, obviously the idea is that she was the twenty third clone of Wolverine. Mm-hmm. The others didn't succeed or whatever. And I think we kind of played that out a lot more in Wolverine and the X Men. Yes, yeah. us trying to nail that down more, and who Craig was also involved heavily in that. Um, but. Yeah, I, I really thought it, the actress did a great job, and I thought the storytelling was wonderful in Logan. But yeah, like I said, other than that third act stuff with the other kids, I thought it, it was a home run all the way. So, but so no, no idea what's over there going to do. And of course, because yeah. we were paid employees at the time, they're not going to give us any credit or anything like that whatsoever. I think Craig was involved, but that was because he transitioned into the MCU at that point, I think, or something. So on the flip side of Laura Kenny, who's had a very long lasting legacy, there is a there is a, there's a different original <laughs> character that has kind of kind of faded oh. away. And I, I'm always reminded once he's doing, you know, a kickflip and an ollie while shooting his titular yeah. spikes out of his hand. <laughs> so just a, a few like what's what's the down and dirty on Spike? What was the creation process like? What happened to him? And just what was what was the behind the scenes of Spike? Well, 
he was one of the characters created, I believe, in the Bible, from what I gather, as just one of the core members or whatever. And it was a way to introduce another person of color yeah. into the show, which made sense. I, I know the fans were pretty upset over the fact that they, we were recreating uh, a familiar Marrow. Uh, line for uh, uh, Storm. I don't think mm-hmm. they were very happy about that whatsoever. I don't know that he, he needed to be her nephew, but you know it, it worked out in some ways, I guess. Um, but he was a lot of trouble. We, we could not come up with a power for him. The, the one that I think the, the person that wrote the Bible gave him was he was an armadillo. He could turn into uh, like an armadillo or something and roll up into a ball and knock people over. And we thought, no, we're not doing that. <laughs> that. That is not happening whatsoever. So we tried all types of different things. Um, and finally, we ended up with him growing these bony spikes and everything. And it wasn't until much later that we found out that there was a character that already had that mural. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and I guess she he, she was kind of a new character at that point or something. So I don't know if, if some accidental cross pollination happened or what went. Yeah, on, she but... was becoming prominent in the comics at the time with yeah. zero tolerance and the twelve. So yeah, but we we had didn't know anything about her. So uh, anyway, so we created that character and just we didn't quite know what much to do with him. And you know, obviously we, he, he was in. At that time, I think he was a very, <laughs> the fans did not like him whatsoever. I, I, now I see that there are a lot of people who did like him. They found out yeah. more recently. That was, that was my younger sibling's fa- favorite character. Oh, oh cool. Why, so yeah. I guess there was something that struck. I mean, he was definitely a hipper character than any of the other. He was a fun but, design. I, I never yeah. understood the level of hate geared mm-hmm. towards Spike. I, yeah. It, it, it was baffling for me because again, when you watch the series again, now, he's a fine character. He's just there. It's it's a different yeah. iteration of the X Men, but he got all of that hate. And yeah, then, and, and I, I would hope it it wasn't because of it being a yeah. black character. But, oh no, no, no. I I think it was yeah. more. It, it's kind of like the what's the Homer Simpson character uh, that they create on on Itchy and Scratchy, the Pippo or something like that. Uh, like yeah, Pucho, yeah, whatever, it, 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 something it, it, like that. But mm, the character worked. One of- there's but you have like laura who who did you you did and she did very well and it's it's interesting it's yeah i i think like i said i think some of it had to do with the whole how dare you touch storm oh yeah and, and do that to her and and plus i think it, it almost seemed like a, a more of a pandering in spike's case which i was not on our part intended to be that way i mean other than the fact that, yeah, there was an attempt at trying to de-white um, uh, X-Men a little bit, trying to get other characters in there. You know, I, I'm, I don't know that they could have found other characters, but, you know, that existed or not. You know, I, I was not that familiar at the time. But, you know, it, it, but it did take us a long time to kind of work up a storyline with him, obviously. I mean, in, I think it was in season three that he got that big story arc yeah. going. And ended up being a Morlock or ha- hanging with the Morlocks or whatever. And then he became an armadillo. And yeah, yeah and then he yeah, literally like, became an armadillo. Yeah. yeah, but he never rolled up, did he? He never rolled up. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Up, yeah. Huh. So but yeah, I mean the, the shields and the plates and stuff. That was that was sort of part of the original idea when he was going to be an armadillo, but we just used it 
instead as a way that his power, his mutant power had just gotten to, turned him into like the elephant man, where it just got out of control and he could no longer face being in public or whatever, you know. That was sort of where we headed with it, with the whole elephant man idea. So It's it's funny because there was a lot of rumors that season five would have had Emma Frost and Psylocke come join, who were really big in the comics at the time, obviously. We've seen the sketches online. Can you debunk the rumors that these were original character designs for Emma and Psylocke? Yes, I'm glad to debunk it, and it's one of those things that come up all the time. Those were not intended for the show. They, those were a commission, an early, early commission by a fan asking what I would do with them if they were to have been an X-Men evolution. And that's as far as it went. Um, it's, you know, so I handled them as much as I could the same way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I suspect that we may not have gotten away with uh, some of the costuming. But <laughs> Especially Silox. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I guess, you know, I've, I've seen uh, cosplayers a few cosplayers actually use those costumes of so, of those designs. Yeah, yeah, yeah one hundred percent. Yeah, well, because so. they were so good. People were so. I remember when you had debunked that a long time ago, and I had always known it. But when I started doing the podcast, everyone would DM me, being like, "Oh, did you see those designs for Psylocke and Emma?" I'd be like, "No, I, I think the the designer just made them as a commission." you know, at, at whatever con mm-hmm. he was at, and they're like, "No, no, that was really it," because you saw the ending of the series. And I think the reason why people believe it was because a lot of folks who saw the the end of the series that was so beautifully done with that flash forward, they thought these were going to be your unused story ideas. Yeah, I, I wish we had been that far ahead of ourselves. <laughs> it would have been nice. I mean, every season, we did not get any lead time up to it. We would, yeah, we would just okay, you're hired. You have to start character design. These are the stories for this episode that you need, and these are the stories for the next episode, or the characters you need for the next episode. Uh, to think that we could have sat, sat down and said, okay, what characters can we include? Let's start doing stuff, development for them before the season even starts. That that was unheard of when we were working <laughs> on X-Men Evolution. You know, so I, I don't even know that they discussed season five mm. Uh, like I said, I wasn't there day to day any longer, but I think they knew early enough on in season four that it was done that I doubt they mentioned much. You know, there may have been some miscellaneous back and forth between Boyd and some of the writers and or the story editing stuff, but I couldn't tell you for sure whether or not there's any thought given ahead of time to the season five at this point. Usually t- towards the end of the season, you, you'd go in and pitch this the big story arc to the kids WB and then say, gee, we like that. Or you'd kick it back and forth with them or whatever and, and come up with what it should be and what, but I don't think they'd gotten to that point. So I wish we had, but it, you know, and on that, who knows, maybe one of these days. On that wish, I wish we had note besides Psylocke and Emma, are there any other expanded just not even limited to x-men but marvel universe characters that you would have liked to have designed in the x-men evolution version we got to see captain america nick fury but are there any from that expanded you're like that would have been cool if i got to adapt them to the the yeah i I think it would have been fun to have a black widow in there oh yeah Um, um 
Yeah, and of course, obviously, Emma and Psylocke would have been fine and uh, would have been cool, especially Emma. I th- I think she could have definitely uh, driven a wedge in there. If we'd she would have shook right things there. up so well, yeah. Oh, my God. Well, especially, Cody, with what you were saying, during that time when yeah. Morrison, when they were writing Emma, Emma revolutionized a lot of the X-Men at yeah. the time. So if you would have brought her into Evolution... Man, I, w- I wonder what role she could have played. Like, yeah, no, it would have been fun to kind of dig into that because that that would have been a new angle to come at it from, especially her being a woman and stuff and uh, a rival. You know, Scott easily manipulated, of course. So. <laughs> Can I ask a question? What do you think a revival would look like today for X Men Evolution? Well, you mean if they continued it like they are doing the 90s, yeah. 90s show? Yeah. Would you, well, would, would you flash forward? Would you pick up where you left off? You know, it, I think it would be good to stay in the basic high school mode. Uh, you know, obviously some of the characters would graduate, but I, I think I wouldn't take it too far forward. I wouldn't leap into that future version right away. I would let the, let the audience kind of sit and similar and wait to see what when we got to certain parts of it and stuff you know i think we could have gone with uh x23 and done a nice arc with her and gotten her and probably wouldn't have gone where they did with the comics initially uh with the whole uh uh child hooker thing or no oh, yeah the nyx yeah. yeah but um there's um there's i would have liked to have gone further with some of those storylines like definitely, I think I think we would could have gotten some of the recruits back into the show. I think. I mean, it was, it, come season three, we dropped a lot of them just because it it made sense story wise, and we just found that it was just too difficult to give them enough time, screen time, to yeah. make it worth the while of having them on. Uh, but I think Jubilee could have come back, and Bobby would have been important to have made more of a sandwich out of him. But, you know, there's definitely things we could have done that. But I wouldn't jump ahead, I think. If I were involved, I think I'd say, no, no, let's, you know, we've got a couple that graduated, but let's keep the ones that are still in high school finishing off high school. I think that's what was relatable and good. And it kind of kept that whole high school uh, romance, you know, cliquey vibe going and stuff. I think that was a good part of the show. So, can I ask, has, has there, been officially any talks of reviving the series no if there have been not to me that i've heard <laughs> i mean i i know uh, a lot of the people who come up to me and it might just be the bubble i'm in the x-men evolution bubble that a lot i know a lot of people saying i didn't i i don't know anyone who wanted a continuation of the other series that kind of wrapped i, I was kind of hoping to do this or wolverine in the x-men they're going to continue something but Wolverine and the yeah. Wolverine and the X Men. There's so many people who wanted that series to be revisited. I'm torn, and I'm Cody. I'm curious on your perspective on it. I just, I think Evolution ended on such a beautiful note. This idea that the X Men will always have, you know, these the these enemies coming after them. That Gene would go into Dark Phoenix. Project Wide Awake would awaken. Yeah, the characters would live on, but. There was a sense of hope in it, and it was such a perfect ending. But then, on the same, on the other side of the shoe here, or coin, excuse me, you want to see those stories built up to those stories, just because the characters were so fleshed out and well realized. 
what's so hard i think about the ending of x-men evolution is it is it is so hopeful of of the the x-men are this eternal story that's going to always have variations and but the x-men evolution interpretations of these stories what you guys did seem is just it's so good that it's like i want to see their version of dark phoenix i want to see their version of emma coming and i want to see their version of them leading a, a team in a distant future and so i think that's where it's like if a revival would happen like it would be cool to explore especially with how many new you know 20 plus years of x-men storytelling that exists now like what would your team do with that is just it's it's exciting in the same way that x-men x-men 97 coming back is really exciting because i'm like what are they going to adapt (laughs) i want to see sure oh but But that ending gives me chills yeah Yeah, you know cody the ending where it, it not the actual ending itself, but when Xavier's finally freed from Apocalypse and he looks at Gene and his face just falls because he had seen I mean the pacing of the story, the the direction, you you guys just knew how to hit all of those proper character notes. Well, that was more of our thing that we were trying. We like I said, we weren't interested in the fights because the fights yeah. are like who cares? Bad guy, good guy, you know, whatever, but you know, hit bang, laser zap, whatever. It was about how they treated each other and how they interacted and stuff. That was where we were focusing most on and making sure that we had those moments that you definitely felt that these were real people. And that's why when we did the voice acting, also we we didn't have them yelling constantly like um, in the first series. You know, almost every line that's delivered in that series is a yell. You know, everyone's you know talking way up here and shouting and stuff and like no we had to constantly pull the actors down and say no no talk like a normal person bring it down here like you're talking to the person in front of you and stuff and and that's you know and we also did things on on that note that we it, we uh, got rid of that fake German Nazi accent for Kurt we did not do that I mean, we we were. Definitely against that thing. And, you know, I got a friend who was from Germany that I was you know, an animator friend that had uh, lived over here for years and stuff. It was German, still spoke with an accent, obviously. And I said, could you read these lines and we can feed these to the actors, let them hear them so they can hear what a, a, a real German action, accent, European accent should sound like as opposed to, you know, sounding like you're on Hogan's Heroes or something. You know? <laughs> uh-huh. so, we were all about the moments and we'd give room for those moments to exist between the characters and the pauses and stuff as opposed to okay we have you know, they can say something but it's got to be in the middle of a battle or you know yeah it it that that care feels there and i guess my question follow-up to that is like do you feel like evolution paved the way for animation in general um just with i definitely say even what you guys did is i I guess i mean more like televised storytelling wise like young justice a dc version of a a sidekick based superhero show has very similar long character moments sometimes without action until that that final act or um yeah just in general i guess what do you feel like x-men evolution's legacy is for for superhero um animation well well, i don't i don't know if uh Greg Weissman what, had evolution in mind or not. It could be. I had really thought about that. Um, I, I never asked him. Um, 
and I doubt he'd ever admit it if he did, but uh, it's possible. I, I think our lasting contribution is the fact that we brought a lot more fans into it, especially female fans, into uh, the world of comics and comic conventions and stuff. I, I think you, you can, I know, I, and like I said, maybe it's just the bubble I'm in, the X-Men Evolution no, bubble. No, it, it most certainly is not. It, if, that if is you look at the, you look at the years before X-Men Evolution at those comic conventions, and it's a woman or girl or whoever there is an oddity. Whereas now, it, I'd say it, they may even overwhelm the number of guys there at this yeah. point. And I think a lot of it has to do with X-Men Evolution and, and other shows as well. But I think X-Men was talked to a lot of them, and that's what got them interested in it. They realized it wasn't just about fighting and stuff, so which is, I think, what a lot of the superhero shows were doing at the time and whatnot. It's just, and some of the movies fall into that trap, too. I think the DC movies really fall into that trap, where it's just, it's got to be a big battle. <laughs> Why are they fighting now? Right? Huh. Who cares? And just take a nap while they're fighting and then wake up and see who won, and, you know. <laughs> well, it, I mean, it's, so we were both at WonderCon. There were so many goth rogues there. And yeah. I was just at Megacon, and I encountered four goth rogues. Oh, did you? At okay. Megacon down in Orlando. So I agree with you that that generation was very much drawn in by X-Men Evolution. Did you um, – you said this earlier. You said that X-Men Evolution beat out Pokemon in the ratings? Yeah. It took I, us about a season. But at that point, so Pokemon wild. was the biggest thing on their wild. network. Wild. Yes. And then, you know, we – they said, well, if you can at least not lose most of the audience, we'd be happy. Because we came on, I think, after Pokemon. And I think it I think by season two, we were beating Pokemon. So which floored them. And that you know, that had a lot to do with the fact that well, I think I think even by the end of season one, maybe we it was obvious what was gonna happen, I guess, because originally our director from Kids WB was no, no, no. We don't want to have soap opera stuff between the characters. The kids are still <laughs> too young to understand that type of storytelling and whatever. But we slipped it in, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that we weren't showing them mathematics. We were giving them piles of uh, storyboards to review, and so they couldn't tell what we were doing really. And so, so by the times this, you know, we slipped in a lot of stuff that wasn't in. If they, if it's, it wasn't in the dialogue, they didn't know we were doing stuff. Uh, specifically, so we you know we do a lot of moments that were non dialogue related and stuff, and you know a lot of glances, a lot of moments between characters that were just there, and the kids obviously reacted to it. And then by season two, uh, Kids WB said, oh, "Really, we want you to do more of that." <laughs> you know what we told you before forget that and uh and they may not even admitted that they ever told us not to do it they may have said this is our big plan we want you this is your directive is do a lot of the romance stuff and, you know high school stuff well but it it worked well it worked out you know boring was kind of the mastermind behind all that and it came off real well so Stephen, my my last question on my end that I want to ask oh, is about Destiny because you included Irene Atler in there, and she has not never before appeared in in an adaptation, and she's such a big character for not only Rogue but for Mystique. Did you get any network notes on including someone like Irene? I don't think so. I don't think they understood her. 
once again, I don't think they realized the relationships. I, I think they thought she was just a caretaker. I don't think they realized that there was a relationship that was pretty obvious between uh, Rogue and, yeah. not Rogue, well, Rogue and, but Mystique and Mystique. Irene. I don't think they understood that or caught that. And if they did, they were hoping no one else would call them on it. Because mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I know that, you know, there were a lot of people that, at Kids WB that were perfectly fine with the whole LGBTQ stuff. Mm -hmm. and uh, But I think they were a little concerned of being demonstrative about it as they would have 20 some odd years ago. But I, I think they let it go because we handled it in such a way that you had to know what you were seeing to see it, I think, mm -hmm. to react to it. So, yeah, it, it's just, a, I, I was thrilled with the idea. I mean, the, the one thing <laughs> that I was talking about it a while ago to uh, someone that uh, the whole risky thing was a very strange thing that we included. Um, oh, yeah. And you know, that was, once again, us sort of say, laying the groundwork. Like, you know, these characters don't all have to be straight and whatnot. There's definitely a thing going on. But then it's like, well, wait a minute. That's her mother, isn't it? Her <laughs> <Dr>. mother <laughs> that's hitting on her. So, I mean, yeah. listen, Mystique has done worse in the comics, yeah. especially. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh sure. But, you know, this is, this With is a Gambit and Sunday morning yeah, show. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I think at that point, people you know, didn't put two and two together as, as we were doing and thinking, God, are we going to get away with this? Are they going to freak out over this thing? And that that was one of the bigger things that we concerned ourselves with is that whole line is like, boy, I think we might be stepping over something here. Uh, how How far in advance did anyone at the network basically like, approve or disapprove an episode before it actually aired like post the post the uh storyboard stage well they, they would be approving all the way along the line they'd yeah. approve an outline they'd approve the script uh you know and, and there would be a no processing yeah way all the way through you know and, and storyboards well i don't remember a lot of notes coming in on storyboards because like i said those are tough to look through with those yeah days. <laughs> Um, but then, you know, Boyd would, he would do the final edit and stuff, um, put together the episode and stuff. And I don't know how much note wise they gave him at that point, because, you know, frankly, at that point, it's hard to get things fixed or changed. I mean, it, you, a lot of it was just, you have to do whatever, you know, uh, meatball surgery you can to just to make it work because, you know, we we're getting overseas animation. And, Sometimes it was good. Sometimes it was questionable. We did have a couple of really good overseas uh, vendors that were doing the work for us. But, you know, sometimes we'd get a C crew on a show. You know, they had A, B, and C crews, and they'd rotate throughout. You know, they'd be overlapping and rotating. And sometimes you got a, a C crew on a really bad, on a really important episode. Like, for example, that whole Angel's Wings episode, the holiday episode. You know, the boy wrote that lovingly and just wanted that to be something special and we they gave it one of the worst jobs and really I at, yeah i ended up having to go back in and redraw a lot of stuff and send it back to them and, as just unacceptable 
You know, we, I went in and we did a lot, of, especially all the stuff between Scott and Rogue at the diner and stuff like that. You know, they just weren't getting the acting we needed. So I had to go in and do a lot of that and send it back to them and tell them to you know, follow these drawings and such. And it is still some of the animation that is still on the weaker side compared to mm -hmm. some of them. But you know, that helped a lot. You know, at least it wasn't it wasn't to the point where it's like, ah, this is awful i can't tell what they're supposed to be thinking now or yeah. it, but there was an approval process at every step of the way some form or another Stephen, where can folks at home connect with you uh, i'm on the internet uh, yeah i've got a website which is basically my portfolio for people uh but they want more than glad to, they can check it out at stephenegordon.com and i'm on facebook i've got a, a art page on facebook and i'm on instagram uh most yeah, you know, they're all pretty much interchangeable to some degree. I'm also on LinkedIn, but you know that's a professional. <laughs> but uh, but uh, if Facebook and you know, Instagram, they want to connect with me, whatever, they're more than welcome to. You know, I'm pretty easy to find. I think. So do you have what, what projects do you have coming up? Uh, I I did I just finished a few months ago a character design gig. One I was just one of several character designers on a uh, Marvel animated show that has not been announced yet, so I can't discuss that. Oh, and, oh, oh. and it's not X-Men Evolution. X-Men Evolution? That. I can tell you that it is <laughs> not X-Men Evolution. Evolution. So, is it X-Men 97 now? X-Men 97. Yeah. No, that's been announced. So. Oh, that's been no, I, oh, it's not been announced. the case, I could tell you, but no, yeah. it's, it's a show that has not been announced yet. And I'm working on a, uh, currently I'm directing on a uh, Disney Junior show for a uh, studio called Wild Canary, and it has also has not been announced yet, so I can't tell you more <laughs> that. But it, it's basically sort of a preschool show, so yeah. with very. Uh, um, this is X Men Babies. Yes, that's it. Yes, yeah. <laughs> Mutant Babies. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, yeah, I think the closest thing they got to that was that uh, funky Avengers show done around yes. the same time as Avengers. Superhero show or yeah, superhero yeah, squad, super squad, squad, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 But, yeah. I've seen I've seen more of those episodes than I care to admit. <laughs> <laughs> but, 